Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, welcome back to Making Media. We're back sharing some of our favorite content. This is going to be an episode with a similar structure to what we did with Packy McCormick. You remember a couple months ago, we ranked our favorite business essays of all time. This go around, we're actually getting more current rather than going deep into the archives and basically running through our favorite content across various mediums that we've consumed this year. Joining us today is Mr. Webb Barr. I like to say that we all live in an echo chamber. I see the same books, the same movies, the same articles referenced over and over. And then late last year, I found Webb and I found Webb's blog that he doesn't write on too often, but when he does, it's loaded with suggestions. I found Webb's Twitter profile and Webb basically unloads countless options for content to consume that you're not seeing elsewhere. So with that grand entrance, Webb, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, just follow my curiosities and a lot of times that could be anything from a book on Jeff Bezos all the way to a book on action films from the 80s and 90s reading right now. Do you have people that you follow to find this weird and esoteric stuff that you tend to then send back to us? Not really. A lot of times it'll be from reading a book and then seeing what's referenced, whether it's The New Yorker or New York Times where they'll have book reviews and I'll see what's interesting or just bop into... Barnes and Noble or Three Lives down in the West Village and see what's new. Right now, I probably have at least 150 unreads laying around my apartment. I can't read Kindle. I like to highlight books and I like having the form in my hand. So I end up with a lot of books laying around, but it's real best way for me to retain information. I'm not taking notes or anything like that unless I need to come back to it for a project. I love going to bookstores and just seeing what is there and how they're curating it. I think Barnes & Noble has actually done an amazing job in the last couple of years, curating less by what's new and more of what people might understand or might want to read. The third floor there of that Barnes & Noble is where I get a lot of Colossus work done when I do city meetings. So favorite spot of mine as well. And yes, I think it's that breadth of different topics that you cover that's particularly interesting. I distinctly remember when my wife saw me reading the screenplay for the movie Get Out, which you recommended they have in book form. And she was quite confused, asked me if I was on to pursuing a Broadway career or some type of acting career, which wasn't the case, but a lot of great nuggets hidden within that book and pretty good example of things that you don't really see elsewhere, especially in our little business and investing niche that we live in. 
No, and that one's really great. It's a great example of inverting. Now, it's the Charlie Munger always invert axiom that I like to watch movies and then say, like, how did they make that? Last summer, I started buying a lot of screenplays just for movies that both are iconic because of their dialogue, like a Michael Clayton, but also movies that I'm like, how did that get greenlit? Or how did they make this? And Get Out, the screenplay is annotated with Jordan Peele's excellent notes of, if I give this away and this too early, I might ruin it. If I say this or this character says this, then this might happen. He was working on that for 10 years. And... I think we'll talk about Jason Blum later, but it's something that you make that movie for five or $10 million and it makes your career. I think inverting that film and saying, well, what was the intentionality behind it versus just the movie magic? And I love reverse engineering it. Another would be Interstellar. How do you get that movie greenlit other than being Chris Nolan? I have no clue. I think you gave the answer there. (laughs) (laughs) Everything, everywhere, all at once is one of the better examples as well. I don't know how you can pitch that film. I even asked a friend in Hollywood to send me if they had access to the original script. I got it. I still don't understand how they got it greenlit, but that's the genius of A24. And a little nugget, the movie cost $15 million, but they didn't say that. They told Hollywood for a year that it was 35 So it's a fascinating industry. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of how it actually works, and I think you've keyed us in on a lot of that behind-the-scenes stuff, we're going to go through different categories. The way that we're doing this today is we're going to rank or list a podcast episode, a book, something within film or TV, and then an article. Dom, of course, may have botched the exercise a little bit, but we'll get to that. The idea or the instructions were to pick anything made in 2023 Genre agnostic. We're big believers that regardless of the genre, you could be learning lessons that apply elsewhere. And I think most of these lessons just cross different fields, different industries, whatever it may be. You can pull something from an incredible director, just the same way you can pull something from an incredible athlete and apply them to yourself. And we're going to start out in our favorite category, the podcast category. So what's been your favorite podcast that you've consumed thus far, 2023? I'm going to totally screw up the title of this show, but it's Rick Rubin's new show, Tetragrammaton, which, like Rick, defies the logic of naming a, a show, let alone a podcast. He was doing a lot of episodes on Broken Record with Pushkin. I think this is completely separate. I think this is his own passion project, but he's been getting these two, three hour interviews, which normally I would say no thank you, but... They're really good. He asks amazing questions and he listens. And the episode with Jimmy Iovine is really, really great. Jimmy Iovine's a record producer and founder of Interscope. And he was an executive at Apple. And what I learned was he retired, which knowing from Jimmy's one of those people that he's tough. He's tough as nails. They don't make him like they used to. He's a New Yorker that moved to LA and produced Springsteen, Patti Smith. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, then Interscope and produced Nine Inch Nails, brought in Dr. Dre and Death Row Records and Eminem. And it's just like a genuinely fascinating guy. And if you've seen The Defiant Ones, this is a really good in-depth look at more of Jimmy's lessons, which in his career are work hard and show up. You could be lower than the assistant at the studio, but if you show up on Saturday, you're the new assistant. 
So it's those kinds of stories. He tells a lot of stories about working for John Lennon and being of service, which I don't think we talk about enough these days, which is if you're a producer, you're not the name. The artist is, but you have to be of service to the artist. I think that's something that is getting lost as producers do more famous and they should. A lot of mediums are producer driven, but it's just a really great lesson. It really reminded me of Bill Gurley's talk that he gave to an MBA class, I think. It's called Running Down a Dream. And he just talks about Bob Dylan, Danny Meyer, a few other people and how they just, they found the people in the industry that mattered. And then they just went to wherever those people were and by hook or crook, like found ways to interact with them. And as you say, just kept showing up, kept showing up. And eventually I was given kind of jobs and just learned by osmosis and by watching. And on the day that someone didn't turn up, they were then slotted in and make yourself indispensable by just doing things for people that matter. And you learn and then you eventually just keep climbing up because you have the passion for it. And passion is really what comes through this episode. Like it's an incredible energy by two people who are not most youthful anymore. And Rick is just, he kind of breaks the laws of podcasting in some ways because he's constantly interjecting, whether it's like, wow, or whether it's asking a sharp question or whether just making noises in the background. For most people, that doesn't work. For him, it just really is additive because he's giving you the sense of this really matters for someone like me who doesn't really know much about what they're talking about. Wow, this must be really cool because he's getting so animated about the stories that he's being told. Yeah. One thing I noticed, he mentions a lot of names. At one point, he mentioned Doug. That's Doug Morris. It doesn't matter to the consumer or to the listener that you know that it's Doug Morris who ran... I think it was Warner Brothers later on, but he had been a career music mogul. They're not dumbing it down. They're having a conversation. You are the listener. And I think that that's important. He gives a piece of advice for creatives and business that you have to remind yourself, which is conventional wisdom leads to conceptual blindness. And this is a guy who said he learned work ethic from Bruce Springsteen. The artist is teaching him as the producer how to work hard. And that is pretty profound. Technically, artist is the boss, but also he's producing and being of service. Yet he's learning from someone like Bruce. That says a lot about Bruce, but it also says a lot about being open-minded and accepting that wisdom from your artist. You have to shed the ego and also be so confident and remind yourself that you know what you're doing, even though almost everyone that we're going to talk about today is self-taught, specifically the music industry. There were several great anecdotes just about how he came up through the industry. And I think you said it well, if you enjoyed the Defiant ones, it's a great episode to understand how Jimmy came to be Jimmy. And the one that stood out the most to me was talking about working with John Lennon and Jimmy saying, hey, John, Elton John's coming into the studio. And he said, I'm really nervous. And John Lennon said to him, well, he's more nervous than you because he's coming into this studio and I'm a Beatle. And it was just such an incredible, holy shit, really put you in the room. It really gave you a sense of what that environment was like in that moment. And just to hear him and Rick, to your point, not dumb these things down, but also still take appreciation in terms of what was happening in those moments and giving it the proper respect that it deserved was pretty neat to hear these people go on for such a long period of time about all those things. Rick's a really curious guy. I think I was listening to his interview with Owen Wilson. He asked this one question that was, do you remember when you were in middle school and the teacher brought in the projector? And then he paused and said, wasn't that great? And Owen Wilson was so excited. And I've never heard a podcast interviewer or any interviewer for that matter 
asked such a crazy, curious question that could lead anywhere. And that's spontaneous. It's also, it really is curious. It's saying like, what were you like as a kid? And were you a student? Did you care? Some people would say, no, that wasn't awesome. I wanted to learn. Owen Wilson probably wanted to watch movies and learn more about the craft. I think it just depends. But Rick brings a different perspective. I think it's wonderful. As far as the cast of people he's had on that show, it's pretty unbelievable. It really is. All right, Dom, what do you got? So I stole your one because you didn't put anything on the piece of paper. So I went with the one perfect story, Wright Thompson on writing about Michael Jordan. And we've referenced this a number of times on our show. And it was, as most of you probably know, that the inspiration for us to record with Morgan Housel on a specific piece that he wrote. So this is, Wright Thompson wrote a profile on Michael Jordan in 2013. And it was titled, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And the premise was he wanted to see what Michael Jordan was up to in his later life now that he's not in the thick of the action on court. Unsurprisingly, I hadn't read the original profile on Michael Jordan. I had read Wright's piece on Tiger Woods in 2016, and that was an excellent piece of writing. I have since read the Michael Jordan piece. But this is just an awesome... I would say it's got really high tempo. Similar to Rick, in a way, Brian just keeps firing questions at him. And some of them are scripted. Some of them, are, he's just following the thread of what Wright said. And by the end of it, you're left with a very clear picture of how this came to be, what spending a couple of days with Michael Jordan was like, what it was like to publish the piece. Did he ever hear from Michael Jordan? And, you, and through all this, you also get some stories from Wright on his career, which is amazing. A few other pieces I would like to note is that I'm very jealous of the way he intros his episodes. He's got jazz music behind it, and it's got a very like soothing voice. It really pulls you in, and then you're like, right, I'm ready for this dissection of the piece that he wrote about. And it's 37 minutes long, so you get to the end, you're almost left wanting more, which is probably a good thing. You don't feel like, oh, I'm dragging towards the end of this. Oh, I wish there was a few more in that. And he asked some awesome questions, a bit like what you were just saying there, where well, the one question that stands out is he asks, right, when you were with Michael Jordan, at any point, did you get any physical sensations in your body during the period of talking to him or listening to him talk? I was like, that's such a good way of drawing out the oh shit moment that we were talking about earlier. And then when they get into talking a bit about Wright's career and what this meant to him writing this piece and whether he was totally fulfilled after it, etc. It's really interesting because he says at the beginning of my career, he just wanted to be the best in his particular field ever. And now as he's older, he's like, I look back and I realize that striving for greatness is kind of a young person's game. And now I'm just really interested in doing a better job than last week, making my next piece better than my last piece. That's such a fascinating insight of actually how people's careers evolve. Everyone, well, not everyone, but a certain type of person grows up young and like, wow, I'm going to break into this industry. I'm going to be the best that's ever done this, et cetera, et cetera. And as you grow older, you realize that there are some other things that might matter a bit more. And actually just honing your craft is a pretty good way of going about your life. Yeah, I found... As you mentioned, you completely snaked this from me in terms of the document. <laughs> you knew what I was going to pick and you went with this still. But to me, there's just as much magic in terms of the making of this story as there is in the story, which is crazy to say. But hearing how Wright got the interview, the amount of time that it went into it, the fact that it almost didn't happen, and then what it was like showing up and not knowing if you're going to get an hour with Jordan or multiple days with him. And basically, you live on the edge with Wright, even though you know what the end outcome was. You're living through this roller coaster of, oh, is Jordan going to invite him back? Is he going to invite him to dinner? And Wright really explains exactly when he knew he had a great conversation going between Jordan and Quinn Buckner talking about aging. And there's just all these little details, which Wright holds on to, Wright himself being the competitive person. So it's insanely good on this micro level and then insanely good on this meta level. 
an incredible piece that really, as you mentioned, inspires how we do podcasting ourselves. And I couldn't recommend it more, honestly. Yeah, I think he's one of the best writers alive right now. As a Southerner, it's a point of pride. I just love seeing someone with such a distinctive voice, writing style, and also audio voice. He does a lot of VO for ESPN's packages in addition to the work. I think he did World Cup 2014, and then he does some stuff at the Masters. He just writes the best. He's a legend. So I saw your piece. What did you end up with? What was your second choice? So my choice was a Ringer podcast, the rewatchables on the movie Whiplash. And this is my hot take. You can throw away all of those personality tests that they give, the Myers-Briggs, anything else. Make somebody watch Whiplash and then have a 60-minute conversation on the record with them. And you will learn everything you need to learn about their personality. The way that you interpret that movie will tell you more about someone than anything else in the world. And I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong, but it's just so interesting. It's a movie that I loved personally for a lot of different reasons. They go into the details that made it so unique. You had Damien Chazelle, who was 28 when he directed this, which is crazy to think about the way that it got done. The fact that it was done in 21 days on a crazy low budget. You have J.K. Simmons, an actor who is basically a journeyman. And then the perfect part is written for him. And he basically gets up to this incredibly different threshold in terms of where he ranks and the awards that he came away with. And then later in the episode, around minute 50, around minute 70, around the very end, you get Bill Simmons and Sean Fantasy, who basically built the ringer after helping to build Grantland, talk about their own experiences and what drives them. Does that insane level of coaching work? And you get inside their own heads and there's just so many incredible things that come out of it. So this is one I've actually listened to a couple times just for various different reasons. And I really, really enjoyed it. So it's a nice pairing with Wright's podcast episode, which is shorter and a little bit more playful. This one's more intense and makes you reflect a little bit more about yourself. And I don't think many people would expect that. When they see the rewatchables, they think about passive junk food listening. There's a lot of brain food involved with this one. I'd say the strongest link is this question that I find fascinating. And they say the film evokes this question for them and they start talking about it of why do people care about being so great at things? And it's something like I've pondered in the past as well. I don't have a good answer to it at all. But it's such an interesting question. What drives people to want to do things really, 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 really well? And obviously, Wright talked a bit about it and these guys riff on it and they talk about the the ringer and their previous ventures. And I don't really get to an answer. I would love to have a house discussion just on that one question. Yes, 100%. It's the whole conversation at the dinner table in that movie. I guess that's what it comes down to. I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know if it's growing up reading a lot or watching a lot of TV and wanting to be that next person or hearing a lot of jazz. But if this movie was made by a 50-year-old, it'd be very different. It's made by a 28-year-old who made a short film before... And then it's made under a really low budget by Jason Blum, who only makes horror films. Damien Chazelle is a special filmmaker, and it feels autobiographical in so many ways. And yet, it does what a lot of great art does, which at the end of it, well, who was right or who was wrong? Is it worth it? All of his films almost ask that question of whether it's Babylon, La La Land. I haven't seen First Man in a long time, but Whiplash... It's so intense. Is it worth all that pain and suffering? And what drives us? And 
It's a great question. I think Bill and Sean really could have dived even deeper into it. Two type A's who are obsessed with their crafts, one being Bill, more so with sports and some entertainment, and then Sean with film. And we live in a time where we can really get obsessed with things. And is it a bad thing to do that? I don't know. I think that's what the movie has. You could have just had them explore the meaning of the movie itself. That's what's great about it is it leaves the interpretation open to the viewer. Some people don't think it leaves interpretation open to the viewer, which is their interpretation in and of itself. But to hear Simmons and Fennessy talk a few times, the two words that have done more damage in the English language than anything else are good job. And you hear Fennessy basically say to Simmons, you're not a big good job guy. I can count on (laughs) one hand. And I know people like that too, who aren't ones to shell out much compliments and they have a different standard. So there's so many, so many, so many interesting things about it. And to your point, I think it's a special film. It's a special group of people interpreting it. And honestly, I think you could have an entire podcast of just two people, two really interesting people watching the movie and interpreting it. And I think it would be an incredible way to learn about those people. So to making media episode. All right, let's transition to books. Webb, what do you got? It's Kingdom of Prep. It's about Rise fall, rise, fall, and hopefully the rise again of J. Crew. It's part origin story, part business book, part creative visionary story, part technology story, part cautious tale about debt and quarterly expectations and growth. And it's also the story of American fashion through the lens of Brooks Brothers, Prep, J. Press, Gap, Ralph Lauren, and then doing something different. For me, the first half of the book is unbelievable. I started my career at National Geographic magazine. And so seeing a fashion brand basically turn a idea, which J. Crew Fashion did not exist until the early 80s, but it, it's a father-daughter company and turning just an idea of a catalog company into basically making fashion catalogs a magazine almost, shooting 8,000 feet of film and trying to be very nonchalant, but also building a lifestyle. The father ran the business side of it and the daughter was a visionary. And creatively, we don't see too many of those kinds of people these days. It's very much reminiscent of that David Ogilvy quote of, you can search all the parks in the country and you'll find no statues for committees. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I think it was very instructive of a visionary founder creatively creating an image around her lifestyle and what she wanted American fashion to be and making it as accessible as possible and then scaling it from catalogs into retail. The Jenna Lyons, Mickey Drexler of it, even I, when I picked up the book, figured most of the book would be about that, figures into, I'd say, one third of the book. And... I just really can't recommend it enough from the brand building aspect. The details into the debt and selling 80% of the company and the expectations changing and also a really great startup story. And it's all contemporary while there's some stuff on fast fashion and can J. Crew come back? And it's very relatable to media. It's relatable to a lot of industries today. And also, I just loved where the author inserted herself and her thoughts on J. Crew. You don't see that too often. And she didn't go too far so that it wasn't just the hagiography. I thought it was an amazing book. I read it in two days. So Kingdom of Prep. 
Who wrote it? Was it a journalist or was she a retail insider? It was a journalist. Her name is Maggie Bullock. I would echo what you said. It was a unique case where she had the perfect relationship with the material, where she was clearly a consumer of it. She didn't let that bias her necessarily, but the nostalgic element to it, her own experiences, she would share it at the right moments in subtle ways. And even her relationship to some of the people talking on the record, if there was something slightly off about an answer, or if she felt someone was being coy, she just did a really, really good job of balancing that insertion of herself where it was pretty much only additive or only additive from everything that I can remember. And that I thought was special. And it basically took to the book to the next level. And I would agree with you. I did not know the backstory with the Senator family. I think I'm going to hopefully pronouncing that right. Arthur and Emily, which was a really interesting, cool family story from taking what was their own lifestyle of cedar shingle vacations off of barren beach towns where you're fishing and just hanging out. And it's luxurious in some ways, but it's stealth wealth, laid back luxury. And bringing that to life in terms of the catalogs and whatnot. And then how that completely evolved and had completely different chapters once it came time for people like Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons. So connecting those two in a pretty interesting way, I would agree with you. Completely different way of writing about apparel and this space versus what you got with something like Shoe Dog, which Shoe Dog is very much like a Phil Knight memoir. This is very much like a J. Crew is the main subject of this story and different in that way and different in a good way, I think. So also really enjoyed this book. It's one of the few books that I've read this year. Yeah. The startup story of working in New Jersey, it's a American fashion brand. They're working out of the Garden State. Yeah, a weird office in New Jersey, and you've got Jenna Lyons right out of college. You have Sid Mashburn and Todd Schneider, and you would never expect a fashion brand to be working out of there. They ultimately moved to Chelsea, and then things change as well. And it's a story about evolution and what growth can do, both from raising more money, but also how it can hurt. And competing with the gaps of the world who at one time have four times the amount of retail than J. Crew, And I love myth building. This is the quintessential. I'm not going to give away the story of how they got the title of the company, but there's a lot of myth building going on. And I love it, whether it's in music or in company myth building. I think ETF sold me on it. Yep. Add it to the list. Dom, what do you have? What 2023 book that came out did you enjoy the most? So I enjoyed a book called Skunk Works, a personal memoir of my time at Lockheed, written by Ben Rich in 1994. I saw your comment on the piece of paper saying they needed to be 2023. I assumed that was a typo. I'd much rather read a classic, although I will have to go and read that J. Crew book. But for this purpose, this I deliberately circumvented the rules. So I read Skunk Works. This is the story of the original Skunk Works, which was a top secret operation within Lockheed that just built some of the most unbelievable military aircraft the world has ever seen even now. And this was back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It was written by Ben Rich, and he was the second person to lead the Skunk Works. He worked under a guy called Kelly Johnson, who started Skunk Works within Lockheed, and he's just a legend. And his rules just on managing a business and how he started it. And I just, for anyone who is interested in making really amazing things within a lean organization, this will speak a lot of common sense to you. And I wouldn't say it's like a page turner in the traditional sense, but every page will have something that will just leave you being shocked by the detail or the technical complexity that they were working in, or just, oh, wow, that's how these unbelievable airplanes actually work. For example, 
YouTube pilots, there was a passage on them, which I just found so incredible. So they were trained to fly nine and a half hour missions, effectively round trips into the heart of the Soviet Union. And then they would come back and the cockpit was, as they say, smaller than the front seat of a VW Beetle. They were in a bulky pressurized suit. They had a really heavy helmet on. They hooked up to oxygen and a urine tube and they were flying 13 miles up in the air. Just the thought of having to sit in the same seat that's so tiny, so cramped, you've got all of this stuff harnessed on you, obviously in the riskiest area that you could possibly be, so far away from any home comforts. If I sat in my comfy office chair for nine and a half hours, I think I would go crazy. The thought of that is just nuts. And then one of the other unbelievable planes they built was the famous Blackbird. And the stats on that plane are just unbelievable. I could fly from New York to London in an hour and 47 minutes go from London to LA in three and a half hours. It was 40% faster than the Concorde, which was built seven years after they built this thing. All while it could take a perfectly clear picture of anything underneath it. It's just an incredible book on how to build a small scrappy team. If you don't like bureaucracy, then I would urge you to read this book because it eschews all of those things that you see in modern organizations. And it's something that you can pick up and put down because it's not something that, oh, I have to get to the end of this. I wonder how it finishes. Obviously, it's history, so you kind of know it. But when you do pick it up, you do learn something about how to make these things or just how the world really works behind the scenes. Well, we'll accept it. That was an incredibly good detailed answer as to why it made your list. And maybe they'll do a reprint in 2023 so we can assume that that qualifies and meets the criteria of the rules here. Maybe you should relook at your rules. I don't know. Everybody else was able to follow the rules. So (laughs) might have to look in the mirror over there. My book was a personal selection. I don't know how applicable or how much interest people outside of the New York area would have in this one, but it is Your Table is Ready by Michael Ketchy Azalina. I might have mispronounced the name there, but Your Table is Ready. It's basically, if you imagine Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, but applying it to the front of the house, maitre d' style, waiters, what the lifestyle has been like in this industry really over the past 40 years. It goes through his career working in various restaurants. And it's all big names that if you've lived in New York for any period of time, you would recognize, you would know, you'd be interested in hearing more about River Cafe, Mineta Tavern, Rosemary's, Lake Cucot. I mean, it's just an, an insanely long list that goes well beyond that. And he gets into the nitty gritty details of how this stuff all works. And one of the great things that stood out is He was working at River Cafe in the 80s, and it used to cost you $200, basically. Walk in with $200 of cash, you hand that to the maitre d', you're going to get a table, you're going to get a good table, regardless of what the night looks like. And what he basically said was you had the crash in the late 80s, the market crash, and since then, that line hasn't moved. $200 today will still get you that table in the busy restaurant, wherever you want. And I think the reality of most situations is... You see things and you say to yourself, well, how does that person have access to that? Or you know, how does this person get in there? And sometimes it's connection, sometimes it's celebrity status, but oftentimes it's the cash that's changing hands. Not one to typically do this in my past. I was just person often waiting in line or making the 5 p.m. reservation with my counterparts, but really good to get the inside scoop. And I think the way that he writes is incredibly entertaining. Some people could be put off by it, but I think it's something that keeps you engaged and hooked and you're just curious as to where the story is going to go. So it was one I particularly love. Webb, I know you read that one and you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think the Kitchen Confidential for the kitchen is very a good comp 
I thought the story really illuminated in terms of the sex and drugs. And he's very unapologetic about names. And it was pretty refreshing, to tell you the truth. It's fun to read these New York stories about restaurants and locations that you know and that still exist or are a little past their prime and wonder what happened. And normally it's either fads, bad management, bad ownership. I rarely think about bad service. And a lot of times that's what it is. So I really, really enjoyed it. I also am not a huge audiobook person, but I do recommend the audiobook on this one. He adds a different energy to telling his own story. So if you're in the mood for an audiobook, it's a good one. I'm going to have to just jump in. I was just on Amazon saying that this was published in December 2022, which isn't 2023 as far as I'm aware. Whoa now. Amazon has that wrong. I'm going to take it up. This is unbelievable. Live, folks, we've got an issue here. We'll have to take this offline, but I just want to clarify that I'm not the only person who didn't pick a book in 2023. Let's take it to Twitch. Oh, man. We'll rewind the tape and I'll make sure that I get that figured out because I am dead certain that it was a 2023 release. I have to talk to Bezos and get that fixed up there. 200 bucks can probably get it done. All right. Let's transition to the screen. Movie TV, any films, episodes? What do you have, Webb? What's top of your list right now? So I'm really looking forward to the second half of the year with Killers of the Flower Moon, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, Indiana Jones, which, gosh, who knows, as well as Barbie and Oppenheimer. But... All those movies are probably 100 million plus in terms of just budget alone. I'm going to go with a five and a half million dollar budget film that is available on VOD right now called Blackberry. In the last three months, guys, we have had a movie on the Tetris game, Super Mario game, the Air Jordan, the Flamin' Hot Cheeto, and the Blackberry. And I have seen all of them. I thought Air was pretty good. It was more music video evoking like an awesome vibe and cool hang than anything else. And it was fun. But Blackberry is closer to The Office meets Social Network, made by a guy named Matt Johnson, who also acts in a Canadian film going over the rise and fall of the Blackberry device. And it's hysterical. It is unbelievably funny. And it's also about someone who... It's a creator story, founder story of how far are you willing to change? How far do you want to stretch your principles? I had fun watching it, but also I learned a lot. I don't know if either of you all had a BlackBerry, but oh yeah, it was it was awesome. Still miss the keyboard. Yeah, the keyboard was great. And also as someone who you look at these budgets nowadays and they're just so insane. And it's just really refreshing that a filmmaker decided to make something that was economical at five and a half million. That's like nothing compared to Killers of the Flower Moon's 200. And it works. It's going to probably have a little bit of Oscar buzz. I don't know if anything's going to happen, but awards don't really matter in terms of the success of this movie. They matter for the careers of the individuals associated. Is there anything more than a coincidence in terms of what you were saying at the beginning? We've had all of these movies on very specific products. No, there's no coincidences. This is where we are right now. We're in the IP. We are barreling through, going through the IP jungle right now of stories that people are connected to that they love or devices they might love or shoes they love. And I think this movie specifically works because 
the filmmaker shoots a lot of fake documentaries, used long lens to capture this in a more raw way. Fake documentaries, they're having a moment too with Nathan Fielder's rehearsal or jury duty. Part two of the superhero move, which is IP that you don't... De-risk it. Yeah. You don't have to spend as much on marketing because people are already familiar with what you're describing, right? Yeah. And while this is based on a book, I would recommend Sean Fennessy's interview with Matt Johnson, the filmmaker from, I think it's the May 10th episode of The Big Picture, because he does talk about adapting it. It is based on a book, but the fun of his adaptation, he says, is you get to decide what you keep in and what you keep out and let the viewer decide what's real. This is not a documentary. This is a film. And a lot of it is fictionalized, but sometimes the truth is crazier than fiction. So it is laugh out loud funny in some parts. In other parts, you're like rooting for people you probably shouldn't be. The book isn't funny. I read the book a number of years ago, and it's more like biographical of what happened and trying to be a part what happened to this superpower of the mobile phone way back when. Superpower or flash in the pan. It's like a 10-year, 15-year run. And I think that's one of those fascinating things. Companies don't last in power that long if they're not continuously innovating. Apple's iPhone run is going to keep on going, but it's only 15 years in. So pretty much the same lifespan of RIM, which is the most famous Canadian company. So if you're Canadian, check it out. <laughs> it is. Honestly, it was excellent. I think your description as the social network meets the office is actually perfect because it does have that intensity and you get really sucked in into the founder journey and the entrepreneurial story at the same time, laugh out loud moments and you see the humor behind it all. So excellent choice, excellent recommendation. Dom, what do you got? All right. Ed Sheeran's documentary, which came out earlier this year, four parts, speech is about 30 minutes long. I just found it to be incredibly honest and frank. It doesn't really feel very staged, although I'm sure some of it is. I went and saw him live last year in Cardiff on his tour. And this is behind the scenes look of his tour. But it really brings to the forefront his wife, Cherry, who has never really been in the public eye, or he and her have talked about their lives together. And he went through what can only be described as a pretty hellish year last year while the documentary was going on. His wife learned that she had cancer. His best friend died. He was taken to court over copyright issues. Um, all the while he's out touring. And I remember going to see him in Cardiff in May thinking, oh, I wonder how many more events he's playing. And his calendar was all the way through to the end of this September. He's doing like 88 nights over 17 months. He's always on the move, always doing stuff, which is just incredible. The biggest takeaway for me is he just genuinely loves what he does. But he's none of this is coincidental. I planned my life to the nth degree. Like I always wanted this from a very young age. If you went to my class at school and said, who's going to be the pop star? It would not be me. I had glasses. I was ginger. I was a frail kid. And now here I am performing with Eminem on stage. This isn't what was supposed to happen, but I just outworked everyone. I planned this so meticulously. And his wife commented on it and she's like, the guy just doesn't see any barriers in anything. If he wants something, he believes he can do it. And he talks about how he uses visualization and just belief in himself to get to wherever he is. And he's clearly become one of the world's best pop artists. It could be one long documentary. I'm not quite sure why they chopped up into four episodes, but I really think it's worth watching. It's very interesting to watch each episode, a slightly unique twist to it. This one is much more about Cherry, as I mentioned. But I would also recommend the first few minutes of episode four is just bonkers. He basically plays with a loop pedal, so he doesn't really have any backing music. He doesn't have an orchestra with him generally. He just builds his songs up by himself on this loop pedal. And there's three or four minutes of him just describing how he does it for each song and how precise he has to be. 
but it's second nature to him. Obviously, he's done it thousands of times at this point. But just talk about watching a master at work. I would love more of that content. And I would urge anyone to watch is it three or four minutes. It would probably go viral on Twitter if I knew how to clip it up. But it's pretty insane. Got to check this out. You sold me on that description. And I'm always fascinated to see how some of these performers actually look and live behind the scenes. And if it's authentic, then it's good. Yeah. I also watched earlier this year, but it wasn't from this year, which is why I didn't choose it. The Kanye documentary in the first couple of episodes there, which is him creating content while he was small and no one knew him, is excellent. The later episodes where it's reverse, looking back in time, slightly less good. But those early episodes are incredible as well. That's what they'll be saying about making media too. (laughs) Yeah. They're almost stories of delusion. You have to have this different level of confidence and everyone is basically saying no, because if something's conventional... Of course, they're going to say, no, you don't fit our mold. We don't want you on our label. It's something that is profound to watch and watch it unfold. Springsteen's a great example. Almost got dropped after his first two albums. Even though they're both incredible, they just didn't find an audience. And today, I wonder with a lot of TV shows in particular, we let them run for six to 10 episodes. And then we just, okay, well, that's enough. Seinfeld took three years to really catch on. And who knows? A lot of it is economics and timing and what the marketplace is. Cable and broadcast are very different to find that marketplace at the right time. But timing is everything. And Ed Sheeran's just, would you think that he's had, I think 2020, he had the second biggest tour in history in terms of gross, $700 million. This is not Guns N' Roses or Taylor Swift, who probably will break all records this year. But I can't imagine that the cost, he might have a backing band, but it's mostly him. He's not doing pyro. He's not running out there and fire is just lighting up. It's pretty raw and he gets it. 100%. It brings up this thing that I've heard recently as well by a number of different people. And Morgan Housel said this is the ability for me to produce it by myself. It's all on me. If I do a great job, it was me. If I do a bad job, it was me. But I love the comfort that it is down to me. And obviously, people are exceptional. They just love the control that they have because they understand their abilities. Makes total sense. Yeah, well, I'm abstaining from voting on this one. I have several that I liked, but nothing felt worthy of taking the number one place. I enjoyed Air. I enjoyed Creed 3. I'm enjoying the Schwarzenegger documentary right now. But nothing feels worthy of getting posted to Twitter in whatever breakout we have of all these selections. I am hopeful for the back half of the year as Webb laid out that long list of excellent movies that's coming. And there's a really interesting documentary that's going to be coming out at some point called Sound that looks fascinating for people like us who are interested in understanding the different dynamics of sound. And it's supposed to be pretty unique and innovative in terms of how this guy went about this. So that one's on my list. I know you could see it in New York, but yes. I'm stunned. I was getting told off for not following the rules. This is your second violation of the rules that you laid out yourself. It's not a violation. Nobody said you had to make selections. It's simply having a quality bar. Rules are meant to be broken. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm finding out. And essentially, there needs to be a quality bar. Somebody has to hold the standard to all this stuff. Maybe we can talk about that at some point, because not only not following the rules and and then bring up a 1994 recommendation. We'll move on. All right. On to uh, articles. Probably one of the more challenging things. I think we've all said we're not as big article readers now. But when we do, I think they're long-form pieces. And there's still a lot of interesting stuff being done out there. It's harder to find. It's harder to sort through. Webb, what tops your list? You had some good suggestions on this one. But what's number one? It was hard. I read The New Yorker. But I decided to 
do their profile on Bella Bacharia, how much Netflix can the world absorb? Mostly because I think it's a really good juxtaposition against the Atlantic's 15,000-word profile on Chris Licht. And I think it's a difference of how do you get good PR versus bad PR? How do you get information out there while it not feeling biased or feeling like propaganda or feeling like it's PR? How do you give good interview without talking shit about your boss or your former, not your boss, but your former predecessor? I think they really lay out where Netflix is in the world. And it's Rachel Symes. I've seen a lot of podcasts have discussed what are the most career-harming year-long profiles on people in power over the last two or three decades. And I think this is one of the better examples of a year-long profile where it's reported out and the writer traveled with Bella everywhere that makes someone better understood. It makes the company better understood. And it shows that Netflix is really aligned. This came out in January. Netflix was recovering from a gigantic drop in stock price, but they made decisions, fast decisions. They launched in the span of like eight months an ad tier. They changed a lot about their programming over the last three years. And you don't see Bella Basharia talking shit about Cindy Holland. It's just a new era. They're becoming television and not necessarily HBO. And that's fine. It's their global initiative. They're so far ahead of everyone else that it's shocking just to see the scale of it from the article. And I just think that this is what you get when you have a company that's aligned. Their leadership has, for the most part, been intact since Bella joined, I think, in 2020 or 2019 from NBC. But they've not been cycling through CEOs and or chief content officers. Ted Sarandis has been there since 2003 or 2002. Hastings just left, but he had been there since the founding. It's a very in-line team. And then you read other profiles. Is This is about ego, or this is about how one person can change the world or change the company. And yeah, I think that it's just comparing and contrasting the two of how to put on a united front in a time that is changing. I don't watch Netflix nearly as much as I used to. They're not doing the same kinds of programming like Mindhunter from Fincher, or I think The Crown is wrapping up, or Ozark. Those are old Netflix shows. They own them. They own them outright, except for The Crown, which is a Sony show, but they are becoming a new thing. And then you get the gourmet cheeseburger, which is commercial. I don't know if I love it, I love that they think about this stuff, at least, and they say it. And whether I agree that that's what programming should be, that's what Netflix wants. And that's their prerogative on a global scale. And HBO is probably what I watch the most of, and they're different. They're more creator-driven and more about making shows that have a point of view and they're artistic. And they get a lot of acclaim, both from awards, but also they're provocative. And they tell amazing stories by amazing storytellers. And they're two totally different companies and two totally different brands. But you look at what Bella has done in the last few years, and it's pretty amazing. A lot of the reality TV is, what if we make a glossier version of Bravo and make it global? Well, that sounds like a pretty smart idea. And then on the unscripted side, what if we use our scale and revitalize Kimmy Schmidt, which is canceled after one season or a few episodes on NBC, or you, the show you that was on Lifetime, 
I don't know. What it says to me is that Netflix is just operating at a different level in terms of their reach and their ability to make shows happen if they want to. It goes into the data and all that stuff, which is a lot of it's hocus pocus numbers. But as I was rereading the profile, it made me wonder if this article came out a month ago, how much even more calamitous would the writer's strike be? Because there is a lot of stuff in here without feeling like it's PR. Because it's not. The New Yorker doesn't do that. So I just think that it's a really interesting piece. I would echo it captures what Netflix is doing. You travel with her to so many different places that what you see when you pull open Netflix is that they've clearly gone global in a way that no other streaming platform has. And there are all types of regional and specifically locally driven forms of content that now I'm getting a lot of options in different languages, but that would still be interesting and compelling for me to watch. And that's captured just in her travels and the way that she's discussing different options. I think the way that you describe the philosophy and how decisions are made, but also while they're aware that this profile is going on and there's some acknowledgement to it and the journalist brings that out, it's also doesn't feel too forced down your throat. It's clear what image they're trying to present, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's forced on you. And to your point, quite the juxtaposition versus the Chris Licht piece. It's not a puff piece. But it's more of a reflection on a company that understands how to put on a united front. I couldn't help but feel her life would be easier if she knew how to use Zoom. That was one of my takeaways. She seems to have a very busy schedule flying all over the world. Yeah, it makes a difference. <laughs> my piece was a similarly long one called I Saw the Face of God in TSMC Factory. Basically profiles Virginia Heffernan. She went to the TSMC factory in Taiwan to see what was going on there. And it's a very interesting piece. It's set in six mini chapters. It's almost like a small mini biography, if you like. And there are some elements to it that I really enjoyed that link back for me to Business Breakdowns, the show that we run, in, particularly in terms of like pulling out really interesting nuggets that people like that stick in your mind, but aren't necessarily really foundational to the running of the business. TSMC employees get 10% off at Burger King and 7-Eleven. Their work perks aren't great, but those are two of them. And then the lengths that they go to to make sure that dust isn't in the foundries and how difficult it is to spot defects on their chips because they're literally working at atom level stuff. I think the chips are like four atoms thick. The human eye cannot see these things and the systems that are in place and the machines are so expensive to operate the, the foundries that they run. So it's just a very nice, very interesting piece that takes you through the history of Taiwan and how this business was set up, effectively Taiwan in the 70s was a superpower making umbrellas. Three out of every four umbrella in the world was made in Taiwan. And then I think they realized that they should probably build something that was a little bit more defensible in the future. So they then went with semiconductors, which has <laughs> been born out as a very shrewd move. It's a fun read, and it gives you a good sense of what's going on down there and what they stand for. I'd say the ending for me was a bit weak. She ends up get ends with her going into the foundry. And given that you can't see these chips because they're so small, there isn't much there. It gets to the crescendo and then it kind of just falls a little bit flat for me. But the rest of it is excellent. Yeah, it does an excellent job of giving you an appreciation for what is required to actually be producing these things that have such an impact on nation state power and everything else that fuels the world. And we often talk about the business side of things. This gets into the actual like manufacturing side of things, the less sexy stuff that's actually the most important stuff. And it is pretty neat. And it's written in a way which is grandiose, almost like epic storytelling and making things, I guess, more important or bigger than they might actually be. But when you factor in the you know national security considerations of all this, maybe it's not Maybe it's not embellishing anything. So a really enjoyable read and something neat that I would like to see more of in terms of 
profile from somebody who has that storytelling gene going into something like this, where it's a very complicated manufacturing process. Totally agree. All right. Last but not least, what have you got? Yes. To finish us off, my choice is The Return of James Cameron, Box Office King, written in GQ by Zach Barron. And what I loved about this is it made me realize Avatar Way of Water was coming out. James Cameron is this legend in filmmaking, but you really don't hear that much from him, about him. You see all these think pieces written about Tarantino, Spielberg, and it had me curious why. And I think this piece actually captures a lot of the reasoning. To start, Cameron is more like a thoroughbred. He's like secretariat. He doesn't go out like LeBron and give you 82 games and then entire playoffs and then play in the Olympics. You're getting a few stints here or there where he shows off his talents. And in this case, it's like every 13 years. Once a decade, you're getting some absolutely insane performance. So that's one thing that stands out. But then you get the personality. And I think the author does an incredibly good job at balancing his true personality and how that comes out through some of the quotes. And just a few of the things Cameron says in here, I'm attracted by difficult. Difficult is bleeping, a bleeping magnet for me. I go straight to difficult. He's adamant that nobody has surpassed him in terms of reaching the deepest place on earth. The author talks about how even his rivals have to admit that he's done well in the box office. He moved to the other side of the world. And his response was, I don't have any friends, so it's okay. (laughs) Self-doubt is not something Cameron has a lot of experience with. There's so many things that you could just read between the lines. They don't outright say what Cameron's like, but you get an idea of what Cameron's really like. And it makes you just take a different perspective on what he's been able to accomplish, the way he's been able to accomplish it. And to me, I just really enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed seeing some of the lines and thinking, oh, I think I know what this is supposed to mean and being able to walk away with that and enjoy Cameron for something different. I just think it was an excellent piece. So true. He strikes me as sort of person that the first time you meet him, you really can't stand him. And then the more times you meet him, you start to understand what he is and who, what he's about. And then you start to respect him and then come to like him over time. If he gives you that time. Might not even come to like him. I don't know. I don't know. I have a collection of these interview books. Basically, they're in chronological curated order, basically starting with a filmmaker's first film and going until... Well, I have one on Cameron and it goes through Titanic. That is basically the arc, which is a lot of his teammates know that he is the biggest pain in the butt on earth. At one point, I think it's after Terminator 2, where they have broken their back to get all this CGI done that does not exist. They basically are creating technology on its own, very similar to Avatar. And at the end, he tells his team, you know, a lot of people wanted to leave. He said, you all can leave, but you'll be back because you're going to work for someone who has less exacting expectations and desires, and you're going to want to be driven to the limit again. And, you know, sure enough, two years later, everyone is back to do True Lies and then do Titanic. He's also a gambler. You don't make Avatar 2 without knowing that it has to be one of the three or four biggest movies in history. Just to break even. Just to break even. And I think that what it's almost like whiplash in a weird way. I mean, this guy takes people to the limit. I don't know if that's... I haven't worked with him, so I can't say if that's a good or a bad thing. But for some people, it probably is. And for others, it's not. And his engineering background is what makes him so interesting to me. I'm not an engineer, but he learned how to do all this stuff and the CGI and the practical effects. And under Roger Corman, who made hundreds, thousands of B-movies, 
And basically, it was the reason that we have Francis Ford Coppola, Jack Nicholson, George Lucas, and James Cameron. He let them experiment on movies. We don't have that nowadays, where people can really experiment at a young age and learn what their expertises are on film. Cameron, he's really driven. When people say he's a visionary, I mean, I guess the article really says it best. He is a visionary because Terminator and maybe Avatar, I think both of those came to him in dreams. That is insane. I think it was Terminator 2, one scene cost as much as the entire first Terminator film. He's an intense guy, and I've heard stories. You don't say, I want to go to the bottom of the ocean at the Marianas Trench and then build all the device and film it unless you're intense. Same with, I'm going to make Titanic. Okay, well, let's go to the Titanic. When he made the 3D version of Avatar, I've heard stories that he had a microscope to look at the film to make sure that it all lined up exactly as planned for the theatrical. Stuff that no one would ever see. He's a perfectionist, and there's a lot to admire, but also drives people to a different level, and that can be harmful as well. Good one to close it on. There's a reason he's been married five times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fifth wife was a detail in there. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Excellent one to close it on. Webb, thank you for joining us, breaking down your list. It was a pleasure. Of course. And we hope to do this again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much. It'll be great.